Lucifer Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. For all things comics, movies, media, music, and more, check out the Cage Club Network. That's cageclub.me. Hey everybody, welcome back to all new, all different Uncanny X's for Podcasts, where we examine the Uncanny X-Men comic book franchise during the 1980s mutant mania through titles like Dazzle and the New Defenders. I'm your host, Jonah. I'm Dylan. And I'm Nico, and we hope you survived the experience because by fuck, we almost didn't. When I put this show together, I was like, oh yeah, and then the Beast is a defender until the Beast, Iceman, and, uh, and Angel are all defenders, and then they're all defenders until they're all X-Factorers, and no, no, this is nonsense. This is just hysterical 80s comic nonsense. Like, they're not bad creators because I've read things I love by every one of these creators. I'm getting a little ahead of myself. We're going to be covering Avengers 209 by J.M. DeMatteis and Alan Kuppenberg. 211 by Dylan Shooter and... Dylan Shooter. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> um, porn what? Because that would be a porn name. No. Oh my god. Jim Shooter. Okay. That's not better. I think it's just not the last better. Today we're going to be taking a look at Avengers 209 by J.M. DeMatteis and Alan Kuppenberg, 211 by Jim Shooter and Gene Colan, as well as Defenders 105, also by J.M. DeMatteis, and the art team of Perlin and Sinat. And let me tell you, this was Sinat so good. At one point, I thought we were going to be following Beast a little bit more closely, but no, no, never. Fine. But anyway, how's everyone doing? Jonah, you know, I promised we were going to be reading stuff that crossed around the Marvel Universe, and this is just like, I, 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 I the nonsense. Oh, this romperoonery fuckery shenanigans that they tried to make me read with my own two eyes. <laughs> How dare they? <laughs> also, I have a new crusade. Hashtag justice for Jocasta. Dylan, you know, I'm so glad I asked you on to be part of this, this moment, this right here, right now. Yeah. What were your thoughts on this spectacle of buffoonery? I mean, when you were asking me what my thoughts were, I thought you were going to ask me what my thoughts were of you for asking me to be on this episode. But since I'm not answering that, this was... This was exhausting. And when I say exhausting, I, I really mean, like, I'm pretty sure I fell asleep within the first four or five pages of 209. I have to agree. And it's so frustrating because I love these eras of storytelling. I love a number of these creators and a number of these characters. But this was not the story we were really looking for. Avengers 209 sees Vera come to visit the Beast at the Avengers Mansion when she's poisoned by Jarvis, who's really a Skrull who needs the Avengers to travel back in time, get the Resurrection Stone, come back to now, give them the Resurrection Stone, and then the Skrulls will give Beast the antidote for Vera. Doesn't it all go that way because the Holocaust... <laughs> and then Beast is like, no, 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 I'm not gonna give this to anyone. Fuck Harry Potter, we beat you to it. And he just 
just he just crushes the stone. He's like, no. And the scrolls are like, no. So then it turns out she's not dead. She's just real, real sleepy. I can't. 210 saw him lasciviously peering at women through like portals that they couldn't see. And I just thought it was better for everybody if we didn't read it because it did not sit well on the heels of 209. But then in 211, Hank says that he's never, ever feared death before until this prank gone wrong. And now suddenly he fears death. So he has to quit the Avengers. Oh, why? And then Beast's third issue of The Defenders sees kind of like a connection to that first issue with Vera and romancing the Sleepy Stone. Jonah, did any of this make any fucking sense? No. None of this made sense to me, even though I still am the newest reader and I've read much less than my two wonderful, handsome co-hosts. This was all still terrible. Everything went all over the place. I have no idea how you can like anybody written here. Everyone was just terrible. I, 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 I'm so confused as to why anyone can get away with writing any of this. Dylan, were you aware that there was a point in time when Moondragon came in and was like, let me tell you how to be Avengers. Do I need to clap back from space? No, I did not know that Moondragon came to be the host of America's Next Avenger for the team. It seemed really cheesy. And not just cheesy, but like frustrating because everybody was like, oh wow, being yelled at really made me think about my actions but okay fuck all of that the overwrought incredibly complicated storyline that they put through avengers 209 time travel did not like this was too many things it seemed like they wanted a filler story and they were like let's just throw in any kind of aspect of fillerness that we can if that makes any sense yeah, it was like a filler, fill them up, fill it, fill it. Jonah, this had to be a not great early example of Avengers. While the Avengers are probably, dare I say, even more uncoordinated together than their <laughs> giant size X-Men team. Dare I even say that because this is an established team and that's how they treat and interact with one another. Holy moly. And this did not paint Beast in any good light for me whatsoever. No, whether it's Mopey Schmoopy Romance Guy in issue 209, the the lascivious horn dog I am skipping from 210 or the I don't know just completely disconnected guy from 211 Dylan I know you're the newest to reading for this show and I know we hadn't read any Beast before this but in your experience could you imagine Beast being like no I've never really been afraid to die before not really Beast's logic is I don't want to put it on par with like a Vulcan, but Beast is usually pretty logical about everything that he does. And even when he is pining over someone in these older generations of issues, he still seemed pretty smart. And I just feel like these issues, these three or four issues, he was just, I don't know, was he given the treatment that Dazzler has been in all her books of somebody writing him and not really knowing really anything about him? Yeah, because, you know, the honest truth is there's no consistency to the character. He has a really emotional story, but I don't know that I even really connect it with him. He's supposed to be this lovable playboy, but we're confronted with so many examples of him being carefree, and it feels sort of like the Vera stuff is squished between a bunch of 
him really not caring about anything. And I understand what they're going for. He's a very light, fun character, but he's racked with a tragedy. But all in all, the Beast's contributions to the Avengers don't really feel substantive. I felt kind of let down that this was how the very famous era of the Beast as an Avenger ended. What people might not realize is that it was a significant period of time that the Beast was an Avenger. More than any major X-Man up until that point was anything else, the Beast was an Avenger. He got cracked into superheroics before anybody else did, having rejoined the ranks of the Marvel superheroes during the time that the X-Men were still running around Marvel team-up being feeble teens. So it's really shocking that he would just leave the Avengers on such such a forgettable note. And I know once an Avenger, always Avenger, Avengers Forever, the Avenger Setters Club, and then the Avenger Setter Diaries. And I know, but there is something that feels like it doesn't really matter that Beast left the Avengers in these pages. Jonah, would you know from this that Beast had spent something like 50 or 60 issues as an Avenger, as well as a number of issues before that, just kind of palling around? Absolutely not. Especially from quotes from mainstays of the Avengers, like Janet, uh, Wasp, talking about what they're going to do with Hank and like how very negative his reception is with the other Avengers. It kind of just makes me upset because why would you place him on a team that nobody really seemed to like him? It kind of seemed like they were tolerating slash babysitting him. And I wonder if it's because he was a big blue horny monster. <laughs> like he was just really out of control in some of these issues. Dylan, Avengers fans claim that Beast and Wonder Man are like the ultimate Avengers team up BFF shit. Did that come across for you in these no, issues? No, it didn't. But with these issues, the Avengers, it's like they're treating Beast as if he's just a guest at their house. And how he so quickly just leaves after the end of 210 or 211 was almost as if he thought he was just a guest there too. But like you said, he's been a part of the team now for about 50 issues. And it's as if there was no significance of him even being there, the way they treated him. And then he just leaves and it's not important to any of them. Speaking of teams that wind up an enormous footnote in the Beast's library, the Defenders is a team that he is on for some 50 issues. Well, that's misleading. The idea behind the Defenders was they were the team that weren't a team. The Defenders would be any number of major heroes that could be called together with a bit of a paranormal bend to help out on fights that the Avengers couldn't necessarily be part of or didn't make sense for them. They featured the Master of the Mystic Arts, Doctor Strange, as well as Damien Hellstrom, occasionally phenomenal, amazing, line-crossing, buyout-crossing, Patsy Walker, the Hellcat, who started out as a Marvel romance character before resurfacing as a superhero and then later appearing in Jessica Jones on Netflix. A number of really interesting characters like Silver Surfer and Hulk. People who were just kind of maybe, it's hard to say too powerful for the Avengers because how are you too powerful to be on Thor's team? But really big motherfucking powerhouses. Damien Hellstrom. I mean, he's literally the son of Satan. So Agree. But the Defender, <laughs> right? Uh, he's always been one of my favorites. I was so excited that Jonah finally got to read one of my favorites. Oh, I'm very excited because I decided I'm going to cosplay him. Ooh. He's so hot. The Warren Ellis run on Hellstrom as well as Druid uh, and Satana as a matter of fact. Some really great material out there. It's available in omnibus form and I definitely recommend the pickup. It's a little 90s goth horror but it's, you know, fun. So the Defenders are a team that wasn't a team and the Beast joined up with them 
them around issue 103. He's in three panels of 103 before being in a handful of pages of 104 and then getting the spotlight in 105. Beast would continue to appear pretty regularly in The Defenders up through its rebranding as The New Defenders. At 125, the book would see the inclusion of Angel and Iceman sort of becoming the every X-Man that isn't in X-Men book for a while. Ultimately, it ended around Secret Wars 2 so that the team could rejoin X-Factor. Well, could rejoin the original X-Men in X-Factor. Well, (laughs) originally it was just, I'm getting ahead of myself. At the end of the day, these stories feel to me like the stories from the Champions, which we said didn't amount to a whole lot. They weren't really referenced. The characters from that era didn't resurface. I couldn't help but notice that Vera feels like she's attached to a part of the Beast's identity that faded away, just sort of faded into obscurity. It was an era before reprints and regular availability of back issues, and she would come to be replaced by news reporter Trish Tilby and that worked for a number of years and then she was ultimately replaced. Characters sort of cycle in and out and whether or not as we continue to read Defenders Vera wakes up I ultimately know she doesn't play a massive role in the life and times of the X-Men but you would think that it's her that in so many ways is the reason he leaves Avengers for Defenders. You would think the character would have more significance but I wouldn't be shocked if we never heard about her again. Jonah when you were reading it did did it feel like this was a bigger story, that there was more to Vera here than we were being let on? Or did you feel content with the conclusion? I don't even know how to feel about this because a lot of that issue, the Beast, Doctor Strange, Reed Richards storyline took a real backseat to Damien's own personal story. So for them to make it seem like in the few pages that Vera is on and talking about her, that she's this so vital character to who Beast is as a man and who he he loves dearly and would literally go back through time and time travel fighting Nazis and weird poor medieval boys for power stones to hear that she's not that important then what was the point of writing any oh that's not fair to say because looking back something in hindsight but still I think it just kind of goes along the same lines as what we were mentioning about the Avengers books. It seems like stories for these books were being written that not much thought or detail was being put into them on whether it was going to have any type of lasting effect that changed or made any part of a character's history important. So at this point, mutants are beginning to dominate X-Men's sales. They're trying to fit X-Men and mutants all over the Marvel tapestry, and we're beginning to see an increase in number of mutant titles. While he was on the Avengers, Beast could do little more than blend into the background. But as a Defender, a title that had a little bit less, let's say, caveat attached to the name, Beast could shine perhaps a little brighter. Dazzler was of course already dedicated to Dazzler, who was a mutant. The New Mutants and X-Men then shared the load of carrying the team title. It's not long from here, within two years even, that two more mutants joined the ranks of the Defenders. I see how the X-Men and mutants at large are starting to spread larger and further through the Marvel Universe. It's almost like a web where they're slowly pulling things in because at this point, I don't really feel like Wolverine's appearing on every page. I feel like Wolverine, while he's about to be in his own miniseries, is still kept to a respectable number of appearances. He's, so far, had as many Marvel team-ups 
to himself with Spider-Man as Professor Xavier and Golden Oldie. It's important to remember that at this time, Wolverine isn't the overexposed item mutants at large are. Dylan, comparing it to the much later era where Wolverine is on every fucking book, every like, there was like times where he was dead and I'm like, I really feel like they're producing more Wolverine titles now that he's dead. How does this compare to the Wolverine burnout that we experienced pretty much from 1988 on? At least with the overexposure of Wolverine, he was still getting some good stories. I feel like at this point in time in books where we're at reading, Marvel really wanted to make sure that their mutants were known. Whether they were people's favorites or not, they just wanted to make sure that they were known and throwing the X-Men or mutant characters like Dazzler, Beast, Iceman, and Angel all over the place. I mean, it, it might be one of the reasons why these issues were as awful as they were. Maybe there was even writers that just were kind of sick of the mutants and didn't really know too much of their history to be able to execute a good story. I have to agree with that because the way that Angel, Iceman, and Dazzler are written, let alone Beast, are really, I don't I don't really know. Dazzler's saying, I, I just make lights. That That's about it. No, you don't. You do a lot of other things. Iceman really only just saying, if you need your taxes done, just let me know. <laughs> I support Sure, I support that. And Angel thinking he's good enough. Maybe that was on brand, but I don't know. <laughs> None of that made sense to me. None of that was good. <laughs> I think the focus was on making sure X number of mutants appeared. Because again, we're talking about an era that had no major focus on a reprint market and instead had a drive toward maintaining a certain number of pages each month. When the focus is quantity over quality, you wind up in a situation, while true, there's uncanny X-Men's out there, but there certainly are a number of Dazzlers and a number of Defenders. It's interesting that the original five X-Men are doing so well and appearing so many places. We're not seeing characters like Banshee appear outside of Uncanny X-Men, and goddamn, I mean, Claremont really tries to get Banshee every fucking chance he gets. But right now, we're gonna have Beast and Warren running around two different titles in Dazzler and the Defenders, and it's so interesting that the thing that is working right now that isn't the giant size X-Men are the original five. I wonder if not having Gene played into that. It's as if to say because Gene died, you have to cherish the original five you have or something because otherwise I don't know that there really is a reason for Angel to keep showing up. He's iconic visually but I don't think he has a whole lot of character in the bits we've read. While Kyle's not here, Jonah, Dylan, I feel like you guys have read a reasonable amount of Angel at this point. Other than Flies and Rich, I can't really think of a way to nail down his personality. One thing I want to know is me joking about Bobby wanting to do taxes. At least Bobby has an idea of what he wants to do. He's going to college possibly from what it's implied here, finance and accounting and he's at least setting his own path where if he doesn't want to be a superhero he's just going to live the normal life he wants to. That's fine. But Angel doesn't seem to have an idea of what he wants to do. His money was kind of just thrust upon him and his life really hasn't changed outside of where he's hanging out and who he's trying to save the world with but he doesn't 
do much. He doesn't seem to have a goal. He doesn't seem to have any aspirations of what he wants to do with his life. He kind of doesn't have to. He's set money-wise, so why would he have to go to college and get a job? He doesn't have to do anything he doesn't want to, and I think it's just confusing for him, and I think the writers don't know how to write. How do you make a rich character interesting? I would agree. He hasn't had to do anything in his life, and I mean, I actually do like the little bit that he had monologue-wise towards the end of Avengers 211 when he was leaving. It really did show in just a few sentences how confused he is, because he doesn't belong with the Avengers, doesn't belong with the X-Men. You would think that would be a really good opportunity right there for a writer to say, hey, there's there's depth here that could go into this confused soul. But yeah, right now, leading up to this point, Warren hasn't had to really do anything. And like you said, with Jean being dead, as great as that is, um, <laughs> the, the guy's kind of don't know what to do. And I think part of it that's so frustrating is that Warren is always associated with the high-flying, free-falling, no-pressure angel. But I feel like that is not the character we get ever. The character we get is always tortured. He's consistently miserable and struggling to find his identity. I think between him and Bobby, we do have an example of what happens if you weren't especially particularly expecting to be one of Xavier's lifers like Gene or Scott. The rest of the X-Men stuck around with the superheroing crowd, but initially Warren and Bobby tried to move on with their lives, and I feel it's as if they're always going to be playing behind the curve at that. They're never going to be able to really reset. Well, I mean, Bobby, you know, gay. But other than, you know, gay Bobby, I don't think that they've ever really broken these characters outside of their initial mold or a single point of contrast like Archangel instead of Angel. Yeah, that's kind of correct. When it comes to the four guys, they have pretty much stuck to their mold, like you said, <laughs> except for Bobby. Maybe Cyclops is a little bit outside the box, but yeah, I agree. Chris Claremont was given the go-ahead to continue writing Ms. Marvel as the way he intended and have the Phoenix, the Dark Hellfire Club, happen to her instead of Jean. Do you think Jean would be suffering the same fate as the original four males, where she would just kind of be wandering around? I do think she would have absolutely wound up with another similar overpowering, because Claremont loves Claremazons, and he's always going to find reasons to make the women more powerful. He just literally doesn't see another choice. Other than sort of dark mirrors of themselves, like Warren becoming Archangel, Scott and his descent into rageful madness, Beast making really bad decisions, but in the name of science, I guess, and, you know, body getting gay. <laughs> There's Why really is that a no dark version. It's not, but it's the only thing he has. <laughs> I mean, I feel like we're going to be tracing a really cyclical pattern with a lot of these characters. They're going to move back and forth through the same modes over and over again, but hopefully we find them learn something along the way. A few weeks ago, I talked a little bit about the Marvel Omnibus line as a method of collecting these titles, and I realized, listening back, there were a few things... I hadn't mentioned that probably deserve to be noted. Over the years, the Marvel Omnibus line has transformed from a select few titles, mostly along the lines of Stan Lee's major works or things like Chris Claremont's Uncanny X-Men and Wolverine titles, 
to just about everything, even slightly successful, gets the omnibus treatment. And I'm not complaining, because it's made collecting comics a lot easier. Ultimately, between the cost of the individual issues or several trades, it all kind of balances out. The omnibus editions are printed in oversized trim. They are lovely, they have strong bindings, but unfortunately, across the generations, there are some inconsistencies. Number one, early Marvel Omnibus used to come in a black faux leather hardcover with an embossed logo on the front and had a very classy feel. Later editions of the Marvel Omnibus frequently have their wraparound dust jacket also emblazoned onto the book. It winds up looking a bit cheaper and a little bit more cartoony frequently, and has taken some of the prestige from the way they might look on a shelf. Number two, earlier editions made sure to include the letters pages, which sadly have fallen by the wayside in later pressings. Number three, and this one for some reason is a huge deal to me, but later pressings of Marvel Omnibus do not contain a table of contents. They frequently will cover something like 17 different series all said and done, yet not a single table of contents to help you navigate it. Oftentimes, the covers, as you get to them, are the only way to parse through those books. It seems like I'm possibly being kind of hair-splitting here, but when you're asking me to drop $100 on a book, it is important that you maintain the interior quality across the line. Now, this last bit is probably just the anal retentive collector in me, and I just can't turn it off. But early on, the collections work very simply. You just grab Uncanny X-Men off the shelf, and it reads straight through. Occasionally, you'll have an annual or a crossover appearance, but generally speaking, if you read Uncanny X-Men 94 on, you'd be able to figure out where you needed to go next. However, once you get to the mid-80s, things become much messier. Marvel, in 2018, released a gorgeous Mutant Massacre omnibus, and rather than just collecting the event itself, it also included several issues on either side. That means that some assorted X-Factor were collected here, some assorted Uncanny X-Men were collected here. The Fallout miniseries that would later on appear are collected here, and kind of in an anachronistic way. While the Mutant Massacre isn't terrible to parse, the later Omnibus editions become a mess. The Marvel Premiere hardcover for Legion Quest, which was the mini-event that led to the Age of Apocalypse, spans what seems like random X-Men Unlimited and X-Factor issues before reprinting parts of the same material already printed in the Age of Apocalypse Omnibus. Additionally, some of those stories are of questionable content. When you roll over to the Marvel Wedding of Jean Grey oversized premiere hardcover or omnibus, it, again, just feels like a random collection of stories. I like what they're doing with these omnibus editions. They're trying to make it possible to step back and appreciate the immensity of everything that's happening. And that's very useful to me as a fan, especially as a fan who looks back and says, okay, the following things happen. 
frequently, I find it's very funny. I'll add one or two issues to our read list as I go through and develop the material. And the next thing you know, six months later, Marvel's re-releasing the hardcover, having added that. Now, I don't think X is for Podcast is necessarily dictating the happenings in the Marvel collecting office. But rather, I think this archivist drive, this need to protect material and ensure that it survives, is motivating a generation of people to handle things a little bit differently. Whether or not I feel the changes in the Marvel Omnibus line are for the best, they are certainly happening! It's led to some cool things, like I never thought I would get my hands on Damien Hellstrom, written by Warren Ellis. It also had the Dr. Druid issues, and it had Ellis and Ostrander's unpublished three issues in whatever form they were finished in. Satana. It's excellent, and if they had adhered strictly to the incredibly high quality material, I feel like ultimately they would have had to say, this is an unaffordability. We have to let this go. So kind of half a dozen of one, six of the other. It's been a lot of fun and I'm eager to see where the line goes from here. Dylan, where can everybody find you online? Everybody can find me at my Facebook group that is called House of X. It's for anything, everything X-Men related. And we have the name first. And you can find me on Instagram at Warpath underscore Dylan. That is Warpath underscore D-Y-L-A-N. Jonah, where can everybody find you? Not having Moondragon telepathically control me and waste my time. You can actually find me online on Twitter and Instagram at Jonah Rubino and at Jonah.Rubino. Nico, where can everybody find you? You guys can find me here all over this network on shows like Access for Podcasts. Nope, that's this one. You guys can find <laughs> me all over this amazing network on shows like Husbands Talking More or Less, where we're currently dissecting the Alien film franchise. Or now and again, where I talk pop music with my childhood best friend, Chris Podcast. Don't forget to check out the other amazing feeds of this show, like Dawn of X, Thor Bros, The Miracle of Marvel Man, and more. As well as check me out on my Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. All right, and until next time, guys, we'll see ya. See ya!